Welcome to Knickknack News. I'm Anthony. And I'm Alex. And my first story today is food news. Okay, this is from Eater.com, and the headline is, What is the shelf life of Halloween candy? Oh, this is a good follow-up to, right? to last week's episode. I thought this was very relevant. Okay, so first of all, what causes candy to spoil is a question that they answer. A candy's shelf life is directly influenced by its ingredients. For most sugar-based confections, losing moisture or drying out is the main reason that it spoils, says Richard W. Hartel, a professor of food engineering at the University of Wisconsin. There are several ways that chocolate can spoil. One is fat bloom formation, where the cocoa butter recrystallizes as white spots on the surface, Hartel says. Especially in the case of milk chocolate, this can make the candy taste rancid, although all the sugars and preservatives probably mean it won't make you sick. Oh, well, that's good at least. So... It'll go into more details of other types of candies later, but that's the one that, like, I've seen that before, and I thought, like, oh, my gosh, it's, like, this is definitely bad. Like, I've actually seen the chocolate do that, but apparently it's not, it won't actually... I've never kept chocolate around long enough for that. (laughs) No? Okay. Um, So how should you store candy? Overall, general recommendations suggest the pantry is the best place to store sweets away from light and moisture. Certain candies like chocolate, may be okay in the fridge or freezer, but any that contain fruit or nuts should not be frozen. I'm not sure why, but hmm. uh, that's what it says. Um, the shelf life of chocolate varies based on the type of chocolate. Jar- dark chocolate will last one or two years if, uh, or in foil if it's kept in a cool, dark, and dry place, while milk and white chocolate will last up to 10 months. The higher milk fat content in white and milk chocolates shorten its sh- shelf life when compared with dark chocolate. So that was interesting. Hmm. Um, marshmallows have a shelf life of roughly six to eight months. Caramel and nougats last six months to a year at room temperature. That's like a really big range. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and away from heat and light. And candy corn can make it as far as nine months if kept sealed. Uh, soft <laughs> jelly candies can last up to a year unopened. But once opened, they can be kept in a covered candy dish for six to nine months, which is still a really long that's time. That's a really big range. I guess just eat all your stuff within six <laughs> yeah. months is what I'm yeah, getting. Yeah, like most of it's like, yeah, that's defi- it's definitely safe six months. And then there's certain things that are like, oh, a year later, it's still fine. Um, and then it said hard candies essentially have an indefinite shelf life, <laughs> <laughs> provided they are stored properly. So if they're not like in the moisture or something. but Right. But like it did mention like, if you don't keep them in like a bowl of soup. Even even when these things get old. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't do that. Um, even when the candies get old, it's not like that they're unsafe to eat. It's just that they will taste Different. bad yeah. and like mm. the, the the components will have like degraded or something like But It's not like that it's actually going to make you sick. Um, yeah, so it says here, most candies do have expiration dates, um, but... Like most foods, actually, these dates serve more as guidelines for when to consume them, and it's generally fine to eat candy past the expiration date, though the quality and texture does decline after a certain point, they said. Um, and then at the end, it was like, so what if you eat old candy? <laughs> <laughs> it's unlikely that eating a sugar-based confection like hard candy or candy corn past its prime will affect your health. Hartel says it's simply an issue of quality decline, not health. Same goes for chocolate. Though it may exhibit some signs of age on the surface... In the form of that chalky white bloom, eating it doesn't actually present any health risks. 
though the texture or flavor may be off. So, so you can eat it whenever. In conclusion, <laughs> you can eat it whenever, but it's probably not going to taste as good if you wait too long. Yeah. More than six months. Yeah. To a year. Yeah. Which is a huge range. Which is a huge range. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of confirmed, like I kind of thought that already, but like that was just a nice confirmation I mean, for me. That I know I I've keep it around forever. So I've eaten old candy and not experienced, uh, experienced adverse results. Just it tasted same. a little funny. Yeah. Same. But so candy's candy. I'm not going right. to just throw that out. You can't just throw it away. I mean, no. it's like, it's delicious. I don't want to be wasteful. Gems. That's what they are. Little food gems. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the first story that I brought is art news. Question mark. Ooh. Um, and this comes from Vox.com. Uh, Christie's just sold an AI-generated painting for $432,500, and it's already controversial. Oh, my goodness. Um, it's so an AI-generated painting. That's amazing. I've heard of those. So I have to admit, this story is like a week old because I found it around Halloween and didn't want mm. to use it for Halloween. But yeah. uh, I thought it was so fascinating. I wanted to bring it up. Um, so this was, they say last week, but this would have been two weeks ago, British auction house Christie's sold its first piece of computer-generated art, which was titled Portrait of Edmund Bellamy. Uh, the piece, which was made by a French art collective named Obvious, <laughs> which is a good name, okay. uh, sold for the aforementioned $432,500, which is about fi- 45 times its estimated worth. I don't know how you estimate the worth of a painting that was made by a computer. I don't know either. Um it was the painting was created uh, via an algorithm which combed through a collection of historical portraits and then generated a portrait of its own, which was then printed onto a canvas. Uh, in a blog post discussing the sale, Christie's wrote how AI could be the future of art, noting how an AI can model the course of art history since it can comb through a chronology of pieces, showing how, uh, quote, the whole story of our visual culture was a mathematical inevitability. Which I feel is pretty reductive, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about sure. that statement, but okay. Um, the paintings, the painting sale brings uh, to light the question of what is art, <laughs> and what <laughs> constitutes real versus authentic when algorithms are involved. A uh, little more information on Obvious. They're an AI research uh, studio in Paris that's run by three 25-year-old researchers who have very French names that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, you can look it up in the uh, in the article, which we will link. Uh, they use a type of AI called the Generative Adversarial Network, or GAN, uh, which they fed with a data set of 15,000 portraits that were painted between the 14th and 20th century. So... Uh, that's a pretty big. That's a pretty big that's time range. Awesome. Also, um, the result is a portrait of Edmund, who is a fictional man wearing a dark coat with a white collar, and which was signed with the magmatic, mathematical formula they used to create it. Which I thought was a neat touch. Oh, that's really cool. Um, and this collective, obvious, has created eleven portraits in total of the fictional Bellamy family. <laughs> so there's actually multiple portraits oh. in this series, and some of them are included in the article. Um, but this has raised a couple of big questions. Number one, is this really art? Um, one man, Ahmed El-Gamal, uh, the director of the Art and Artificial Intelligence Lab at Rutgers University, who works on GANs, uh, believes that AI-created art should be looked at as an artistic craft itself, um, as a collaboration between two artists, one human and one machine, which I thought was like kind of a neat way of looking at it. Mm, yeah. Um, but, I mean, is it, is it art if it's computer-generated? That's um, that's an exercise we'll leave to the to the listener, I guess. 
<laughs> well, okay. What so do you are, think? Are we getting into that conversation right now? Because I do have opinions. I have about one more. Th- I have one more thing. There's also controversy over who gets credit for the art. Um, oh. Is it the AI researchers, the AI itself, um, or the artists whose pieces actually fed the algorithm? Like those fifteen thousand artists, or presumably, uh, like mm-hmm. was it their art? Um, the, um, the AI that was used to create this portrait wasn't even written at Obvious. Uh, they used an open source um, uh, algorithm that was created by a man named Robbie Barrett, um, who's a 19-year-old AI artist, and he released his research openly on the web. Oh. So they didn't even make the algorithm itself okay. that generated this. So who owns it? Yeah. Like, who's responsible for this? So, yeah, those are the kind of big questions. I, I know that was a little long, but that's a... Uh, no, that's, that's fascinating. The, um, and they go into a little more of their opinions on the, on those questions, but I'm curious okay. what you think. So in short, yes, I think it's still art. Um, my opinion is that anything can be art if it requires some type of special skill or some type of special circumstance to create. Mm-hmm. And if others appreciate it, like if you're like either looking at it or experiencing it, it gives you some type of special unique feeling. I think it can be considered art. That's kind of like my personal criteria yeah. for it. And I think that that fits that criteria. Um, as far as who should get credit for it, that is a really hard question to answer. Right. I don't know. But if you think about it, like any, okay, let's say like a human painter paints a portrait, but they've been inspired their whole life by all of these other types of art styles and art paintings and other things that they've seen, Mm. you know, that's still their artwork that they created. Right. It's not like you don't give credit to people that inspired them. And that's true for other types of creativity too. Like in music, like if you create a song that's inspired by a certain genre and you're inspired by like all these things that came before you, and then you created your piece, that is part of your, creativity and your intelligence to make that right so like right. that's just a known thing in, in any type of like art work creativity type stuff so i i think that someone who is involved in the actual creation of the piece should still get credit for it even though technically there was an algorithm that was trained on prior artwork yeah um but then the whole thing with like that wasn't their code or like what that that i don't I that don't i know. that i take more issue with like, that's like <laughs> as a software person I myself think, i kind yeah. of like as a software engineer myself, I, I, that makes me a little, that's, that makes me a little upset, but, um, yeah, I definitely agree about like the fact that it's learning from all these artists, like that shouldn't influence it. But also then I guess just to kind of play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. there's the idea of parody in things like song. And could this be considered like a parody almost of these other pieces of art, as opposed to something that was constructed from like just straight up learning? And I don't know if I believe that. I'm just I'm just posing the question. Okay, well, let's say it, it is a parody, hypothetically. Mm. What does that change about these questions? Well, I think with a parody, most of the time you would agree that the original artists deserve some credit for like coming mm. up with the original song. Like a lot of times, a parody is just okay. lyrics as opposed to like melody. And I see. Yeah, just, I guess that's like just a fair food for thought. Another, I, like, I don't know if I agree with that. I think I, I think about it. I think I lean more towards. Um, it's the, uh, owner of the algorithm creator, I think mm-hmm. probably has more, I think that's what I would more say credit. Too. And I definitely agree with the idea that, um, it is art because it did take effort and it did like mm-hmm. require some like creative thought. 
Yeah. Um, I sh- thought I'd show you the art as well. So oh, you I'd can like, I would of, like to see it. Uh, judge it for yourself. Uh, this is what it came up with. It's kind of a blurry picture that's of a, a man. It's a little blurry. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a theme with all of them. I don't know if it was to make it look more convincingly like an, like a, an oil painting or something. There's another one of the Bellamy's. Oh, okay. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I just thought it was really, it was <sighs> fascinating. This is so, oh, I like, I really like discussing this. Um, so a thing with machine learning that makes it kind of complicated to figure out ownership, um, is because the way that that field is going is that certain technologies are just kind of like known and you can't really mm-hmm. like, like, can you really own an algorithm? Like you yeah. can. I feel like that's a, but, that's a standing question. And even in computer science is like, who, right. who owns code? Like, it's yeah. This, like at what point is it something that, Oh, I own this code versus it's just a, it's code. It's just, like you yeah, can't right. like own. A, right. So that's happening in the machine learning world too. And, and how it, like people are just taking the same code and then applying it different ways or like, this person has access to this training data so they can get this output that someone else might not have had, even though the actual code that's like doing it, it might be the same. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, should those people still get credit for that? Because they put together the data set, they put the time in to do the training and output and like do all that. Should they actually get credit or should really the first person that made that code? And what if it turns out that like this code, someone made it a really long time ago and someone uses it to make something awesome way way down the line but they slightly modified it right like, if what, they, what if they slightly improve it over time it's yeah like, what, right how then, much then credit do they credit get for it, it? like yeah. it's a slightly better algorithm suddenly okay it's so weird that way yeah. like i don't even there's not really it's a really answer it's really question. tough yeah if we want to get into intellectual property law but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation has probably about, already gone just, on long enough yeah i know this is a long conversation but i it's so I fascinating know, it's just really, really interesting i'm really glad i brought like, this because it's it is just such a cool thing to talk about yeah. and think about. Yeah. I, I like talking about stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. My next story is health news. From the BBC. Um, so, drum roll, llamas have been used to produce a new antibody therapy that has the potential to work against all types of flu. Like all strains of the flu. You had me at llamas. <laughs> and then you got me again at flu. <laughs> Um, so according to the BBC, influenza is the ultimate shapeshifter, constantly mutating its appearance to evade our immune system. Like it mutates a lot. Yeah. That is why a new flu shot's needed every winter and why the vaccine sometimes misses the mark. Um, science is on the hunt for a way to kill all types of flu, no matter the strain or how much it mutates. That's where the llama comes in. (laughs) 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 Um, Antibodies are weapons of the immune system, and they bind to proteins that stick out from the surfaces of a virus. Human antibodies tend to attack the tips of those proteins, but that is the part in which influenza mutates most readily, like that tip part of the the proteins on the influenza virus. Okay. Um, So llama antibodies are smaller than human antibodies, and they can use this size advantage to, like, wriggle deeper and attack the parts that the flu can't change in the proteins that are expressed. Huh. So it has like more access to attack it basically. Yeah. So a team at the Scripps Institute in California infected llamas with multiple types of flu to provoke an immune response. And then they searched the llama blood for the most potent antibodies that could attack a wide range of flu strains. And then they picked four. Yeah. I think the llamas are okay though. Okay. I think they just, I don't think they like, they just put, it's the same, like they just made it like invoked like an immune response so that they could like look in it. But I don't think they like, 
Llamas, llamas didn't were, get, like they didn't get sick. I don't think they were like har- harmed. It pic- didn't say. I, I don't just, know. I just pictured a llama <laughs> sneezing, and it's like adorable and also sad. Mostly adorable. Well, Go apparently on, their sorry. antibodies are really <laughs> effective at fighting off the flu. So okay. I think the llamas are okay. Good. Um, so they picked four of the llama antibodies and then built their own synthetic antibody that used elements from all four of those. So they made this like super antibody Ooh. from those four. Um, so then they did a study in mice to test the effectiveness of it. So professor, which, which side note, you have to do that in order to like get right. cu- human trials for stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Professor Ian Wilson, one of the researchers, told the BBC's Science in Action, quote, it's very effective. There were 60 different viruses that were used in the challenge or like the testing that they were doing, and only one wasn't neutralized. Wow. Of all of the ones that they tested in the mice. Um, and, and he noted that, that the one that it didn't work as well it was like a virus that doesn't affect humans. Oh. Also well, or something. like Something about like it wasn't even. Yeah. Um, and he said that the goal here is to provide something that would work from season to season and also protect you from possible pandemics should they emerge. Um, and then Professor Jonathan Ball from the University of Nottingham told the BBC, having a treatment that can work across a range of different strains of virus is highly sought after and it's like the holy grail of influenza. So this work published in the journal Science um, is still very early stage research and the team wants to do some more tests before starting human trials, but... Basically, they've, they've published their first test, and it's been very effective. So, well, it sounds very exciting. promising. That is, yeah. So, this would be like a vaccine you could get once, and then mm-hmm. you'd be done with the flu. Yeah, I think that's the idea. Yeah, that would be really cool, right? I don't like that. Like, couple days a year where my arm is really sore because I just got a <laughs> flu shot. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Seems um, to get worse every in, year too as you get older. <laughs> oh, really? Like <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually only started getting the flu shot a couple years ago because I had to for work. Yeah. Um, but. So I don't know, like over time, if my arm's going to keep getting more sore, but <laughs> it's not great <laughs> getting shots, but, yeah. but, um, yeah, so that, so you, uh, you know, hypothetically you could just get one vaccine and then be good. That's really cool. So I hope good that they, uh, are successful. Yeah. All right. My next story is travel news. I'm just Ooh. making up a bunch of categories. Two this time. new categories this, <laughs> this week. Uh, this is this one's short but sweet. Uh, it's from CNN. Uh, the world's first underwater hotel residence has opened in the Maldives. Oh, cool! Have you seen this? No. It's really it's it's really cool. Do you have photos? I do. Okay. Um, so uh, the Conrad, which is I think like this resort, um, Maldives, uh, Rangali Island, has opened the world's first ever underwater hotel residence. Um, it's not just a rumor, a suite. It's a two-story villa. <laughs> That's set more than 16 feet below the Indian Ocean. Whoa. Uh, its name is Maraka, uh, M-U-R-A-K-A, not like the musical instrument, oh, okay. um, which means coral in the local language. Uh, in addition to a bed, shower, and other typical, typical components of a hotel room, the Maraca takes luxury travel to another level with a private gym, a bar, an infinity pool, which, is that underwater? I, that wasn't clear. Um <laughs> Butler's quarters, an ocean-facing bathtub, and most importantly, an underwater bedroom with full views of the ocean. And that's what there's pictures of that, and I will definitely show you. Um, and the top floor is above the water and has a relaxation deck, so you can like still sun yourself um, if that's what you want to do. Uh, Whoa! So, so that's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is, oh, no. um, 
It's only accessible via a four-night $200,000 package. (laughs) (laughs) That's $50,000 a night. Um, That includes a personal chef for all meals and the use of a private boat. And uh, also an extra perk, I guess, is for those who book it, get automatic Hilton Diamond status. (laughs) 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 Which, duh. (laughs) Uh, Um, and this this property is also home to uh, Itha, which is a an, an underwater five star restaurant, which was actually already part of this resort, oh. and it's all accessible by uh, via a boat, so oh. you can get to it all, and you can get to the the main like uh, hotel that is resort. So as well. cool! So it's it is wild. <laughs> um, let me show you a picture here. So this is the bedroom. That is insane. So like if you've ever been to an aquarium, picture one of those like tunnels that you walk through with the uh, like the the glass ceiling and you can see the fish and stuff swimming over top of you. That's essentially what the bedroom is. Just in a giant one of those. A big aquarium hallway, except it's not an aquarium. It's the ocean above you. It's the entire ocean. There's a bed in it. It just, yeah, just in the tunnel. Yeah. It's wild. That's amazing. I wish I had an extra two hundred thousand dollars just lying around because that's wait—is it two hundred thousand or five hundred thousand? Two hundred thousand. Okay, so it's so slightly it's a more, bit reasonable. more reasonable than if it was five hundred thousand. So <laughs> just need to start setting aside a little bit of each paycheck. And <laughs> yeah, and in then a by few the time lifetimes. <laughs> but yeah, it looks ridiculous. Um, in the best possible way. So I, I, that's really cool. I'm going to say that before I have time to spend or to save up money for that, there will be VR technology in which I can <laughs> simulate that experience for I much thought, less money. So. I thought you were just going to say like a cheaper underwater hotel, but that's <laughs> probably <laughs> that maybe that too. I don't know. VR that probably will, took a lot of money to build. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, they had to build it um, above water and then they sunk it. Oh, and then like, and then, atta- and then like, attached you... it to like a concrete footing. Like, I, I was thinking like, okay, maybe they build some type of concrete base and then like suction out the water somehow, and then yeah. build in it. Like, how do you even build that? So you walk in, it's like hmm, this still smells a little oceany. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, that's cool engineering. I thought so too. Yeah. Okay, my third story is a random local news story. It's actually from New Zealand. Ooh. So it's a world local. World local news. news. Unless you're from New Zealand. And then it's it's just local local news. news. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is also from the BBC. A New Zealand fisherman has rescued an 18-month-old boy from the ocean in an incident described as a freakish miracle. Gus Hutt, a holiday camper staying on Matata Beach in on North Island, was fishing when he spotted a small figure floating in the water. He first thought it was a doll and only realized it was a child after the child let, quote, let out a little squeak. Like, he thought it was a doll. Okay, and this is a quote from him. I thought he was a doll. <laughs> oh, that's the third time I said that. Okay. <laughs> Even as I reached out and grabbed him by the arm, I still thought it was a doll, Mr. Hutt told local outlet. The um, Fakatane Beacon. His face looked just like porcelain, 
with his short hair wetted down, but then he let out a little squeak, and I thought, oh, God, this is a baby, and it's alive. And he was floating at a steady pace. If I had just been a minute later, I wouldn't have seen him, Mr. Hutt said. Oh, my goodness. It was crazy. So Mr. Hutt's wife, Sue, alerted the camp staff, who informed them that there was only one couple staying with a baby, and emergency services were alerted. And the baby's fine. But so apparently the baby had escaped from the parents' tent by undoing the zipper and then just, like, went into the ocean. Like, oh, because he just, like, liked the, the ocean. It was, like, their first trip to, like, the ocean. And oh it just, like, goodness. escaped from their tent, like, went into the water. <laughs> it's, like, really scary. That's terrifying. I know. And then he just happened to be, like, floating around. This, like, fisherman guy saw him and, like, saved him. They basically. are never going to take their eyes off that kid again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, it's, like, one of those things, like, they're going to be helicopter parenting for the oh, rest of yeah. the kid's life. And the kid's going to be like, I was just a baby. I didn't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Stop helicopter parenting. <laughs> no. I don't know. But anyway, it was, like, an awesome like coincidence basically that the guy was there so yeah he's fine but that's well that's i'm yeah. glad it's a it's a happy happy ending because mm-hmm. that could that could easily go another way but uh yeah let's not dwell on that <laughs> right no but yeah, like isn't that isn't that amazing that's, and that's i don't know crazy. like how far out this guy was but he was fishing in a boat so like it wasn't like he wasn't like right by the beach i mean he was right. like out on the water fishing so that's like, yeah, what this, are the, this what are the kid chances? like went in the water and then must have been like I think he was like back floating or whatever like, and just was like stayed afloat long enough and the guy saw him so. Yeah, isn't that amazing? That's 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 wild. So. Well, nice job, Mister Hut. Yeah. The last story that I brought is space news. This comes directly from MIT. Uh, the headline reads: "ET, we're home." Uh, existing laser technology could be fashioned into a beacon to attract aliens. What? <laughs> so this is cool. Um, so <laughs> I'm laughing a lot at this. Okay. <laughs> uh, if extraterrestrial intelligence exists somewhere in our galaxy, a new MIT study proposes that laser technology on Earth could, in principle, be fashioned into something of a planetary porch light, a beacon strong enough to attract attention from as far as 20,000 light years away. Uh, This research comes from author James Clark, who calls it a, quote, feasibility study. So don't get too excited. This is not in development. It is just uh, somebody studied whether this would be possible. Okay. Um, And the study appeared in the Astrophysical Journal. Uh, The findings suggest that if a high-powered 1 to 2 megawatt laser were focused through a massive 30 to 45 meter telescope and (laughs) aimed into space, the combination would produce a beam of infrared radiation strong enough to stand out from the sun's energy. Whoa. Um, such Such a signal could be detectable by alien astronomers performing a cursory survey of our section of the Milky Way. This is making a lot of assumptions that they exist. Um... (laughs) Um, but this is especially if they were in nearby systems. Uh, if the signal was spotted from uh, any of the any nearby systems, the study found the same megawatt laser could then be used to send a brief message in the form of pulses similar to Morse code, which is kind of cool. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Clark said the feat can be realized with a combination of technologies that exist now and that could be developed in the near in, in the near term. So, fees like it is feasible right now with what we have. However, <laughs> he acknowledges that a megawatt laser would come with some safety issues. <laughs> such, I would imagine. Such a beam would produce a flux density of about 800 watts of power per square meter, which is approaching that of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> which generates about 1,300 watts per square meter. <laughs> 
wh- and while the beam wouldn't be visible, it could still damage people's vision if they were to look directly at it. The beam could also um, potentially scramble the cameras aboard any spacecraft that happened to pass through the beam. <laughs> so... It's uh, it's feasible uh, technology-wise, maybe not so much uh, practically. Um, well, it seems yeah. like it's not that it's not practical. It's just really dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds super dangerous. <laughs> uh, he also, did, he also uh, looked from the alien side um, and found that uh, a telescope one meter or larger would be capable of seeing such a beacon. So like from a, from a distant planet, be capable of seeing the beacon that we were sending from Earth. Okay. Um, but it would have to point in the signal's exact direction to see it. Um, so their chances are increased if they're nearby. That's why they brought that up, but it still oh. would be... Yeah, because the further away you are, the harder it is to get To line that, that up directly. Angle. So it's still probably not going to happen, but it is kind of a neat thought experiment. It is. Um I cannot see any government funding this project <laughs> ever, yeah. but it is fun to think about and talk about. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I just love the idea that it would approach the flux density of the sun. <laughs> Small caveat. We yeah, might make a, little... a just going to make a tiny sun right here on earth. It's no big deal. Might be a little dangerous. Might, you know, hurt large groups of people, but might r- melt your retinas out of your head. <laughs> But, you know, it's risks risks come with science. I mean, it's all in the name of science, you know? So, Okay, it's time for breaking news. Hooray! This is the part of the show where Anthony and I look up stories that were just posted today or just happened today, and we read them to you on the fly. Ready, set, go! go. Okay, I found one. This doesn't seem like a real news site, but I'm going to go with it's real. Um, It's Hot 107.9. It's America's favorite rock station. What is this? Of Katiana's hottest music? I don't even know what this is. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I'm I'm still going to read it, though. It's funny. It's like a music website that has a news story. Okay. Uh, the headline is Lafayette man sent to emergency room after huge raccoon fell through his ceiling with photos. <laughs> um, I have questions, but I, I have a feeling you're going to answer them. For Edward Barus, it wasn't the timing as much as it was the type of guest and the inconvenient entrance that was made after a massive raccoon fell through the ceiling of his St. Street's home. This is a quote from him. I was awoken by some kind of scampering noise in the attic space directly above me before I could determine what was going on. And while looking up at the ceiling, both sheetrock and a large animal fell directly on top of me. I jumped out of bed and turned out the lights. It was a large raccoon about the size of a medium dog. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, this is terrifying. If, as if the idea of a raccoon falling on you in the middle of the night wasn't bad enough, Barus could immediately tell he was cut and blood had covered one side of his face. Um, and he, yeah, he got cut, like, on his neck from the From, like, the fall, rock. From <laughs> just the, I don't know if it was from the animal or from the, the, yeah, so sheetrock is um, drywall. Oh, that's just slang. It's, it's like, a, like, I think in the 
south or other parts of the U.S. they call drywall sheetrock. Oh. I learned from watching HDTV. So oh, that's what that, that's what that means. It's like th- that material. Okay. That makes more just sense so you know, than just like rocks why came out of his head. Yeah, his yeah, house yeah, is yeah. built out of rocks. <laughs> Unfortunately, he couldn't deal with his injuries because the raccoon freaked out and began running throughout the house, destroying everything in his path. <laughs> Then he says, I put on bulky clothing, leather work gloves, and started the process of closing doors to limit where it could run. It took about 15 minutes to avoid the raccoon, close doors, and open the front door so it could run out. Um, After getting the raccoon outside, he went directly to um, the hospital and received a tetanus shot and five rabies shots. Um, That's a lot. Yeah. So then it just kind of goes into his injuries and stuff, which was actually kind of bad. And then there's pictures of a hole in the roof of this guy's bedroom. Um, and apparently there actually was a hole in the roof too. So like there was like a hole in his roof. Oh, so that's how it got in the attic. And I think that, yeah, um, that must've been how it got in the attic. And then it fell through the, the like ceiling after it was in there and that, and fell onto his bed. It that fell is, onto him in his bed. In that the middle is of the terrifying. Night. Yeah. All right. Uh, the story that I found is from CNN. I thought we'd end on a high note. Okay. Uh, four types of Duncan Hines cake mix recalled due to salmonella outbreak. <laughs> I was I lying. You were serious. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely thought you were serious. Uh, <sighs> Another outbreak. So a recall was issued for four types of Duncan Hines cake mix due to possible salmonella cam- contamination. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration said on Monday. Um, the voluntary recall was issued by uh, Conagra Brands due to a, quote, positive finding of salmonella in a retail sample of Duncan Hines' classic white cake mix that may be linked to a salmonella outbreak that is currently being investigated by the CDC and FDA. Um, so the four types of cake mix that have been recalled, in case you have any of these, I've never actually heard of this brand, but um, classic white, confetti cake, uh, butter golden, and uh, <laughs> classic yellow. <laughs> So hmm. most of them, okay. <laughs> uh, the DNA fingerprint found in, uh, the sample of cake mix that they, they cited matches the DNA fingerprint identified by the CDC in five cases mm. of salmonella illness, according to the FDA. Wow. Um, so several of the individuals who are sick told health inv- investigators that they consumed cake mix before their symptoms began. So there are some okay. people that seem to have actually gotten it from this, um, yeah, so that's a. It, it, there's really not I'm much more to say about it, but sure, uh, sure. Um, I'm surprised you haven't heard of Duncan Hines. I guess I just don't. Said? I just don't recognize it as a name brand. The boxes look familiar. I've definitely purchased Duncan Hines frosting, but okay. I don't know that I've purchased their cake mix before. I haven't actually bought cake mix in a long time, so. Yeah, and I guess. But I, I do recognize that brand. That's one of the one of the big ones. They. They mentioned the article that some of the sick individuals could have eaten the mix raw rather than cooked, which, what are you doing? Is that a thing people do? I'm imagining a person just opening up a box cake and just like eating it with a spoon. Like, what are you doing? Oh, they're, ta- they're talking about once you've made it into batter. Oh, Not just okay, eating okay, the, okay, okay, okay. the mix alone. <laughs> That's what I was picturing too. Is just like, like somebody eating like, handfuls eating of cake like, mix. Like with a spoon, you're just like eating what it out of the box. Doing? What is happening right Maybe now? I shouldn't say this, but you probably deserve salmonella. <laughs> <laughs> like you're not supposed to do that. No, I, I can definitely see people eating the batter. Oh, like, yeah. You're like tasting it. You're like licking the spoon, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but don't do that. Yep. That's why Which, you shouldn't do that. Definitely yeah, anything Although, involving raw I eggs, would, too. Right. I wouldn't suspect the eggs more than the cake mix right. in that. So. 
But you never know. Maybe you got them from both. It's super salmonella. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We post episodes every Friday. And as always, the links to this week's stories will be in the episode description. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and those other apps. And while you're there, maybe give us a, give us a little rating. Give us a review. Five stars if you like it. Uh, and just don't don't rate it at all if you don't. And uh, uh, if you want to see more from us, you can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash knickknacknews and Twitter um, at, at knickknacknews. And I also just added a link to uh, the merch that we mentioned um, in a previous episode. Yeah, we have um, merch now. If you go to knickknacknews.com, that'll take you uh, to a list of all of our episodes. And there's a link at the top that you can, that'll take you right to our Redbubble store. Ooh. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.